This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever wondered what it's like to bite into nerds' gummy clusters? They're fruity. They're tangy. They're gummy. And they're crunchy. Nerds Gummy Clusters, a union of fruity sweet gummy and tangy crunchy nerds. Unleash your senses. Shop now at nerdscandy.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And, and anything we can do to help uh, everyday science, everyday people uh, understand science and help them see that you know, it, this this isn't fake science. This this is how discoveries are made. Uh, this is where this is how data is generated. This is all that's involved. Uh, a better appreciation for what's what scientists are doing and how complex it is, and, and the and the work that's done to make discoveries. I, I think it's gonna it's gonna it lifts up everybody, and especially when you can get them involved. It, it, it's just such a fantastic thing. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus. And in a previous episode of the Science Focus podcast, I discovered how a team of scientists harnessed the combined power of hundreds of thousands of players of the massively multiplayer online game EVE Online to help in the search for exoplanets. Now, the next phase of this programme, called Project Discovery, is turning its sights from the stars to the coronavirus pandemic. This week, I spoke to scientists Ryan Brinkman and Jerome Valdespool and Project Discovery's creator Attila Shantner about why they intend to turn gamers into citizen scientists and how they can help find a cure for COVID-19. Uh, my name is Attila Shantner and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Massively Multiplayer Online Science, uh, also known as MMOS. And uh, we are a small Swiss startup uh, who came up five years ago with this idea of connecting citizen science with uh, major AAA video games. And so we're kind of the, the link between the scientific world and, and the game developers. So I'm um, Jérôme Valdispul. I'm an associate professor of computer science at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. 
Um, and my my lab works in in bioinformatics, so typically we're developing uh, uh, algorithm to study biological data. And um, uh, I've been interested uh, for the last decades actually in developing also uh, games or, or programs to uh, that allows people to, to contribute to research and help to enhance the performances of uh, algorithm uh, for the analysis of biological data. Uh, I'm Ryan Brickman. I'm a professor in medical genetics at the University of British Columbia. Uh, my day job is as a distinguished scientist. That just means I'm old, I guess, <laughs> at, uh, British, at the British Columbia Cancer or BC Cancer. Um, and my background is flow cytometry bioinformatics. Uh, which is the folk, the flow stomach data is the focus of the um, data that we're pushing through today. And so I'm, I've got, all, I'm lucky to have all three of you on today because uh, you are all working on project discovery. Um, I was just wondering if you'd be able to explain to me what, uh, you know, what the project is, uh, where it has been and, and what the, what you're um, working on now. I'll start a little bit by talking about the, the history of project discovery, because this is a story which is going on for five years now. And um, basically, five years ago, we started with a very specific idea, uh, which was connecting citizen science, which is crowdsourced scientific activities, um, with video games, with free-play video games, uh, with already big, already established uh, player communities. And the motivation was to solve the long-term engagement and activity problems with citizen science. So that was our, our initial idea. That's why we created our small small startup. And we connected, uh, contacted CCP uh, immediately five years ago. Uh, CCP was super interested, in, intrigued by the idea and receptive to it. And we set up Project Discovery. The first Project Discovery was together with the Human Protein Atlas. Then in 2017, we started to work together with the University of Geneva to search for exoplanets in the game. And just recently, we started a new project which uh, involves flow cytometry. And so what was it about that drew you to computer games that made you think, okay, well, this would be a really good way that so we could use uh, gamers to help um, help us, you know, solve these scientific problems? So I think, I think it's unquestionable that video games are the most engaging form of entertainment of the day. Uh, we see how, how people are uh, using more and more video games, how more and more people have access to video games. Um, it's, it's it's incomparable to any other sort of of medium that we uh, digest. Also, it's a very active form of form of entertainment. Uh, so it gives you a special um, special possibility to integrate something where you want the players to interact with your problem. Uh, basically, what we're doing is we're approaching online communities, in this case gamers, and we try to smuggle some real life activity into their everyday digital life. Uh, and and that's what project discovery is. And you say that there's been two projects so far that have uh, have you know you've started on those two projects and you, you've gone. What were they? You know, how did they go? And and how did you come about creating these projects before? The the first one was together with uh, with the Swedish research team, the Human Protein Atlas. Uh, they're curating a, a big uh, 15 million uh, image database. It's an open database for researchers of uh, microscopic images of cells and and tissue samples. And um, well, the first first setup was was an experimental one. 
Nobody has ever done this in the video game industry. So we're looking around in our, uh, through our network in, in the research institutions uh, to find good uh, candidate projects for citizen science activities. Uh, we try to convince game developers uh, to embrace this feature and, and you know, uh, implement uh, these kind of mini games in their, in their virtual worlds. And, um, and so, so, so the whole process was sort of experimental. Uh, we ended up with a very interesting setup where us as a small entity created a, a sort of middleware which standardizes scientific data and gives an API to game developers, uh, which, which has proven to be a really uh, good approach because we could offer this service to other game uh, companies, like recently we started a collaboration with Gearbox. Um, and, and, and so, uh, so uh, after the inception of the idea, uh, less than a year later, we already launched the first project uh, together with CCP. Uh, that was Project Discovery Proteins. It was running for one and a half year, roughly. We collected uh, 33 million classifications from players, which is just mind-numbling. It, 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 it's really unprecedented. Uh, then we switched uh, to another project uh, uh, together with the University of Geneva. Uh, which was introducing light curves in the game. Uh, light curves are these um, uh, luminosity versus time graphs of stars, uh, where we ask players to look for dips in this curve, which might uh, uh, signify a transit event, and which might which might lead to a discovery of a new exoplanet around that star. And uh, there we collected uh, uh, more than 250 million classification. Again. It's completely incredible. And this Monday, that's when we started our new project uh, with this team who are here uh, today uh, and uh, whose aim is um, to use the flow cytometry technology to, to get a better understanding of it about COVID. So, the, the, you know, that's a, a big goal that we've gone there. You've, you say the first one is the human genome. The second one, you're just you're searching for exoplanets. And now you're using the technology and the, the gaming mechanism that you've got to. Um, it, what is it exactly? Are you looking for a, you know, a cure or information or, you know, things that can help uh, produce a vaccine for COVID-19? Uh, maybe I can talk a bit about that because um, we're we're on our side. We're being more on the biology side. Um, so there's a couple of things going on. You know, it'd be one of the challenges with this data is really complex uh, data. It's it's 20 dimensions, and the scientists have to go through this data um, because we limited to looking at data in, on either on screens, um, either gaming or the scientists are doing the same kind of thing. And so with these computer screens, we can only see two dimensions at a time of this 20 dimensional data. So, and it's, so it's, they're trying to navigate through this um, at two dimensions at a time. And it, it's, it's a really complex analysis. Um, it's also, um, there's some subjectivity, subjectivity in how the scientists do the analysis because essentially they're drawing circles around dots. Um, and they, they, so they can be variability in science, scientists, and it's also time-consuming. Um, it can take anywhere from five minutes to maybe an hour and 15 minutes uh, to analyze just one sample and, um, and to get the answers that they want on that one sample. And if you're doing a clinical trial, um, you may have thousands of samples just in one trial and is in the news you know, all these companies right now are trying to develop um, vaccines and therapies um, for COVID. And so there's 
hundreds of these trials going on at a time. So just masses of ma- masses amounts of data. And um, we know from work we've done before with other groups that um, when, they, when they're doing these clinical trials, it can take them up to three months to get the data back um, from the analysts once they come off the machine that analyzes this. And when people are dying at, at a very alarming rate, um, you know, waiting three months for data to come back is, is really not an option. Um, and so by leveraging this crowdsourcing, um, one of the things we can we we hope is that um, we by putting this infrastructure in place, um, both for this pandemic and for the next one, we, we know this is not going to be the last pandemic we, we will ever face, um, that if there's a possibility to get answers much quicker, um, and that's going to be life-saving. So that that's the, that's one of the early goals. Um, the other thing is it's a very um, again it's this complex data set. I said it's you know twenty dimensions uh, that people are trying to go through, and so scientists are limited um, to, in how much of that space they can actually implore, explore. Um, both based on time, they just don't have the time to go through twenty dimensional data trying to explore. It's literally hundreds of thousands of different. Uh, plots on the screen that they have to go through uh, for one sample if they want to explore the full dimensionality of that. Um, uh, and so by leveraging this crowdsourcing, uh, we have the ability to really, you know, with you know, 20,000 eyes on one single data set, uh, you have the ability to generate much more data much more quickly. And, and with that data, we have the opportunity uh, to find discoveries that would have never been found with uh, traditional analysis because we're, we're just mining the data much more effectively. So we can discover um, things that are happening in, in the immune system. We can talk a bit more about the biology um, that would have just been missed and we can discover it much faster. Um, and the other thing is we're, the data that's going to be generated from this project will help us develop better tools and algorithms to do this um, the next time around. There's been lots of computer tools that have been developed to do this analysis, but when you're developing these machine learning kind of algorithms, it's really dependent on on the training data you have to um, uh, develop these machine learning algorithms, how well they're going to perform. And there's a really a, there's a dearth, an absence of uh, training data that will help us develop these algorithms. And we're going to generate that kind of data in spades with this project. Uh, I, I mean, there's a lot to <laughs> there's, there's a lot to take in there. I mean, I guess one of the first things that we should uh, probably establish is, you know, what is the you know for a start, what game uh, is it that, that people are playing, and what is the game mechanic that they're doing, and then obviously how does that translate into all of this data, this this you know uh, scientific data that that you can then use. So, um, well, the problem we try to address here is commonly referred as the clustering problem. The idea is to try to group data into um, into into plots that that are uh, similar or that should belong to the same entity. Um, so the idea of the game, as it is it presented, it's uh, it's an image when there's plenty of dots inside, but some regions are more dense than others, and um, the, the density, uh, the shape, or just the shape of distribution of the data tells us if these things should go together or should be grouped into a, a different uh, cluster, as we name it. And um, the purpose of the game is we show you this image and you have to separate the region of this image to say this is one group of dots, this is another group of dots. And by the description I'm, I'm just making here, you understand that it's, it can be sometimes very intuitive. And there's no perfect algorithm for uh, determining if 
um, the cluster should be big or rather uh, very small or tight and so on and so forth. So um, we rely a lot on the, the visual perception of people at seeing how these things are distributed on your screen. And afterward, on the uh, agreement that many players will have together to try to extract the consensus and uh, capture the wisdom of the crowd uh, determining if there is indeed a, a group of, of things that should be grouped together here or not. So the, the problem as I frame it is very general, and that's why my group has been working on for a while. But um, I think it was about five years ago, something like this, uh, Ryan shoot me an email saying, okay, what you're doing here is cool uh, in clustering, and I think I have the perfect data for you. And um, we, we realized at this point, so Ryan explained to me all the all this work and realized that this problem of clustering is uh, perfectly fitted to the, the flow cytometry data analysis that he's doing in his lab. So you say flow cytometry. Can you just explain what flow cytometry is? Because I, I, that sounds like it's a pretty critical part of this. <laughs> yeah, and not a lot of people have heard about it. Even I didn't hear about it when I joined, when I started my job at the cancer agency. And, and I, I saw what these people are doing, and it's like, hmm, what, what the heck is that? And it looks kind of interesting. And why are they doing it? Because it looks like something computers can do. So the way, the way this technology works is you sneak up on someone, poke them with a needle, and take their blood. And um, the technology, and the reason why we're using flow cytometry to look at these this blood samples, it's um, the, the word flow cytometry, where cyto means cell, and flow is things flowing in a liquid. And so um, the flow cytometers um, ideally suited technology to look at different cells in the immune system and, and what they are. And so we, we have, you know, um, in your white blood cells, you have um, the cells that um, your uh, the white blood cells that you're born with that um, give you sort of your innate immune system, the immune system, the immune system you're born with that just recognizes things that are in your body that aren't you, that shouldn't be there, and helps your body attack that. Um, and the other, um, they also have the different cells in your blood um, that recognize, oh, I've seen this infection before. Um, I, I, I see it again now. I can mount a very rapid response to that. And so there's many different cells that are present in your immune system that um, mediate or are important that it, for attacking these infections, um, such as COVID. Um, and a lot of the um, problems that we're seeing in, in COVID right now is this huge inflammation in the immune system. Um, they, they call this the cytokine storm. And so your immune system just goes crazy trying to attack this virus. And so with flow cytometry, we can look inside the blood of these people and see what's actually happening at the cellular level, what cells are changing, what cells are disappearing, what cells are being attacked, what cells are activated. And we have to find these different cell populations in this 20-dimensional space because there's so many different kinds of cells, immune cells in your body. And this flow cytometry technology lets us pull out the specific ones that are changing under different conditions. It's, it's used for cancer, it's used for HIV, um, any kinds of uh, uh, t uh, diseases of the immune system are using this technology. Now we're applying this technology to COVID to help solve this problem and to develop therapies. And so that you know, the, I guess that the technology, uh, how, how that works specifically, you're just collecting the data and then you're feeding that into the game uh, and then letting it loose to the, the the players within the game to then have a look and see what you know where it looks like. There's clusters of data or cells. Exactly. 
Exactly. We're, we're taking the this, um, the scientists. Are, well, this, the, the data is really complex. So as I mentioned, it's it's twenty dimensional data, and to, there's a lot of biology that's involved in, in when the scientists are looking at this data because the bi the biologists understand um, that we we think in this disease that um, natural killer cells might be important, and so they're really going to be focused on trying to find this one particular clump of cells in this huge dimensionality. Um, data. And so they've, they've designed very quick ways to navigate through this data to find these one or two or three or 20 populations that they're interested in. Gamers don't understand immune systems and the different cell populations and what's important. And, and that's okay because th this is the cool thing that, that working with Attila and Jerome has happened is they don't have to because what because we have the power of the crowd, we don't have to shoot them through and explain to them what path they have to navigate through this 20-dimensional data because we have so many people who just say, here's everything. Um, find everything in all possible combinations and then we'll sort it out later. Um, and, and so that we'll give them all the different projections of this data to look at and um, they'll find everything. And so they'll find the stuff that scientists want to find. They'll find stuff that is probably not important because it has nothing to do with disease. But the cool thing is they'll find stuff that scientists might not have looked for because they're, because of time or because they're, they're looking where the light is. And we'll, we'll have the chance to discover this. Well, maybe if I just want to top on that, I think that's very important what uh, uh, Ryan just said, because through crowdsourcing, we'll be able to have a look at this data as it has never been done before. And uh, potentially, what we hope is like we have, uh, we, we find better way uh, to navigate this data to be able to extract uh, its its full potential, and um, eventually realize the promises that all this uh, technology uh, can deliver to us. So I guess it's a case of that when you when you collect the, the the samples and the data, all the data is there. You just have no way of filtering through it, and you're using the power of of the the people who are playing the game to be able to filter that for you in the, in a way that you hope. I guess you hope an uh, an algorithm or an AI would be able to do in the future. Exactly, and 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 there are lots of algorithms that have been developed so far today. Um, and they're really great for doing discovery kinds of problems where you say, I, I want to know what's different between all the sick people and the healthy people. Um, but when you try to apply those um, same algorithms to do clinical reports to say, I'm really interested in finding NK cells, um, because these algorithms um, are for the most part unsupervised, which means um, they try, they don't, they're not giving a lot of information about the data that they're looking at when they're trying to find these clusters. Um, and so they have to adjust for the size, shape, and distribution of all these different cell populations in very high dimensional space. And all these cell populations look a little different in how they're stretched out or squished. And, and so these unsupervised algorithms really, they're, they don't have the, the performance when you're trying to do clinical reports. And so they're not really used for that. But human eyes are, our eyes are designed to find patterns. And, and we've, you know, we've evolved to detect patterns uh, so we don't get eaten by tigers. Um, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to apply this really awesome pattern recognition that humans have uh, to data sets to help build better algorithms, to learn how, how humans have been trained over millions of years of evolution to find these patterns and then say, hey, look at what these humans are doing. This is how they find these patterns uh, and show that to computers and go, oh, I get it. And then they'll go off and do the same kind of thing. Um, presumably for that to work, you need a, a, a significant amount of human eyes uh, looking at that data. Yes. We, we need lots of data and we also need um, uh, them to do a good job 
because if the humans are 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 gaming with one hand and shooting space aliens while at the same time they're trying to draw clusters around dots, um, they, we may not get the best data. So we need lots of data, and we not we need lots of good data. So the, um, one of the things that um, uh, CCP and and the groups there have been involved in teaching the um, the lay people and the gamers how to do the job that scientists are doing, and and that's that's really interesting. So how do you go about choosing a game uh, to to feed this mechanic in, and then once once that's in, how do you go about making it accessible to, as you say, people who are shooting starships uh, to to then go off and you know be be scientists as it were? So uh, you know, in the last five years, my big part of my job was to go to gaming conferences and events and talk to game developers and publishers and and convince them that this is something super important. This is this is uh, amazing to do. This is a lot of fun working together with scientists, bringing this to the player community, and it brings a lot of value to the game. Um, and so uh, mostly we're we're aiming for for bigger games because, uh, as Ryan was saying, uh, we need a lot of players, a lot of activity in the citizen science project. Um, in in general, citizen science is based on this idea that we have to hand out the same task to many people, and then we do some sort of aggregation or majority voting to see uh, who are the guys who are off and who are the guys who are doing a good job. Uh, to and, and this way we can we can provide very high quality output. So we are looking for for bigger games with uh, potentially hundreds of thousands or millions of players. In the case, case of Eve Online, Eve has roughly half a million active players every month. So it's it's a big game. We have a big player community who can contribute to this project. Uh, not to mention that Eve is, you know, Eve, Eve player Eve players are crazy. Uh, crazy interesting bunch of people. They they say that 99% of them are science buffs and they they're used to solving very difficult problems. They love to be challenged and they they really welcome the project discovery. The other project that we launched recently was together with Borderlands, which is a completely different kind of game, uh, a bigger game but a much much diverse audience. And and uh, uh, again there we worked worked uh, worked together with Jerome to bring uh, bring another scientific problem there. But uh, that's that's one thing. Uh, also, we have to find uh, places in the gameplay where such an activity uh, works. Uh, so, for example, in EVE Online, there is a lot of idle time. You're waiting for your buddies to, to come with their spaceship to fight. And while you're waiting, you just open Project Discovery and solve a couple of tasks. And these tasks take... I don't know, 10, 10 seconds, 20 seconds, something like this. So uh, every time you have a little bit of free time, then you can contribute to science and every process. This might not work that well in another game, like if you take League of Legends, while you're playing, you know, you need 150% of your attention. There's no way you're going to solve scientific problems while you're playing. Although, you know, if you take these uh, um, uh, MOBA games like League of Legends, there is always this network synchronization part where we're waiting for half a minute, two minutes for other players to load the client. It would be a perfect place to add some scientific activity to 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 contribute something really meaningful in the meantime. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. These are the games that we're looking for who can provide massive uh, massive crowds. And I guess the hope is that the the, the same enthusiasm that the the even line crowd um, players took to the previous uh, discovery missions, um, they will take that to the new one. Especially, I guess, given the fact that there's a global pandemic on at the moment. Yeah, I think I think this is a this is an extra layer of motivation, so to say. Uh, 
simply because because the situation what we are in uh, as, as as humanity um, in in general it's really interesting because there has been extensive surveys of why people participate in the first place in any citizen science activities not just in games and um, uh, uh, these surveys shows that the primary motivation is to help scientific progress. I think it's super important because that's the that's a very solid foundation for this project, that people want to help. There's an intrinsic motivation. Of course, in games, you know, putting or, or, or taking away this effect, what we have with COVID right now, we have this additional layer, which is reward, in-game rewards. So we're very attached to your, to your uh, favorite virtual world that you're playing with. And we are sort of thanking players uh, for contributing with in-game rewards, which connects this whole activity to the to the bigger picture, to the lore, the narrative. So there's a sort of dual psychological effect of that. Not only are you helping the, the, the planet, you're also getting uh, some in-game rewards out of it as well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, the, you know, it was really interesting because with, with the first project, Discovery, um, CCP game designers created a, a, a new in-game currency for, for just project discovery, which was called analysis credits. Um, now, you could use this analysis credits to go to a special shop, buy something, and then sell it on the market and get the main in-game currency, which is ISK. What we've seen, there were many very active players who never bothered to spend this analysis credits, which is a clear sign that they were not doing it for the reward, but rather for because they wanted to help the science. And and the uptake has been incredible. When when they when they, when they pitch when we, we we start talking about how much how many answers we could get, I was like, really? It, it, and I I I wasn't sure. And I, I think so far we've exceeded expectations. I think the net, what, you guys have a bit more answers and numbers. I think we had like five hundred thousand puzzle solves on, on the first day. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's it was even uh, higher. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's insane. <laughs> So as a scientist, you must be, um, I was just going to say, as a scientist, you must be really, really thankful for this, this huge amount of data that's coming in, like almost instantaneously. It, it, actually, it, it, we're a bit worried that, that we're running out of data. And so my, my team is busy trying to get trying to get more data as we speak because because we have to keep that bucket full. They're just going it through so fast. We thought, oh, this will be okay. We have a couple of days uh, to generate the next round. It's like, oh my gosh, we're running out. <laughs> So I guess uh, th this is great news, obviously, for you to to have all this data. So what do you, uh, you know, what can you do with this now? You, you've got this data now. What can you do with it now? And and how long will it be before you can actually say, okay, these this is the science coming off the back of you know players of a game doing some spare science in their time. Science is a long road, and, and it, it's it's frustrating for people. It's like, why don't we have a vaccine yet? Um, we just just to design these flow cytometry studies takes weeks easily um and then you have to go out to the patients and poke them with needles and collect all their blood and, and you have to have get ethics approvals for what you're doing um you have to organize scientists and clinicians and, and so just to generate this data is a massive amount of time and so a lot of these studies are just starting up so we have this infrastructure in place and some of this data is starting to filter in but these are the first studies we're, we're, we now we have data from the, you know the various first outbreaks in italy that's the data that we're getting today and that that that, that story was weeks ago um month a couple months ago really right and th that data is just now filtering into our system and so a lot of these clinical trials um we don't have the data yet they're just getting up to speed um, and once we put this data through the system, as Attila's mentioned, we have to massage that. We have to take, you know, hundreds of hundred players' analysis of the same data set and figure out what the best 
way to put that together to get the one best answer. Um, we've never done that before. So we have to develop, we're developing the algorithms at the same time as the players are generating the uh, data to help us understand what they've done. And the next thing is we have to start looking, and after that's all done, then we have to tease apart these massive data sets to try and find out um, what's changed. Uh, and, and also trying to overlap that with what the stuff the scientist has, has looked for. Um, so, so we're not we're not going to get any answers next week, um, and probably not even next month. Um, very early on, we're going to be able to you know, give the scientists data to help you know put that in their hands as soon as quick as possible, so they can put their expertise on this soon. So one of the big ideas we have this from this project, it's not just the people that we have here involved that are looking at this data. All this data is going to be made available for everybody to look at in the community, other scientists, not just ourselves. We're going to expose everything um, in an open science kind of way. So we're crowdsourcing the ideas. We're going to crowdsource scientists to look at this data that we've crowdsourced um, gamers to look at. And, and so hopefully with more eyes, more scientist eyes on this data, that more gamers' eyes have looked at, we can get to the answers quicker. Um, but it, it's science, and we, we, we have no, we don't know when that next discovery is going to come. Yeah, if you, can I just add on top of this, is like, um, what is very interesting, I think, in the project as well, uh, as you can guess from what Ryan mentioned, like, uh, there's different uh, levels. I mean, in the sense that uh, there's a, the urgencies of finding something for COVID and things like this, and uh, we're trying to, to build the technologies to, to advance this. But um, we have to get prepared also for the for the next uh, outbreaks potentially, and uh, all the technology and the infrastructure that we're building here uh, potentially can be very can be reused afterward um, to apply this technology uh, much more faster uh, for um, using flow cytometry at a large scale on uh, emergency uses um, and. So here we're speaking about uh, COVID, but that can be another source uh, later. And uh, Ryan, so using that for uh, um, cancer, uh, cancer patients. So this, it can make a breakthrough in terms of uh, how we use this technology in uh, day to day. But, but this, is, this is a general problem for scientists. You know, I, everyone's going to ask, when, when's the cure going to happen? Or when's the next big discovery? And I think no scientist would ever tell you, oh, we're going to have the answer for you next week. It, it, it's this is science. It's if we knew how it was going to be done, it, it it wouldn't be science. Science is about discovery, right? Um, and so things can happen very unexpectedly. You know, you look at that um, that bread on the table and see there's mold growing, and then boom, you, you're done. And sometimes these things take years. Um, we're we're looking for that mold um, <laughs> in COVID, um, and there's some things that we know to look for, and we hopefully can get answers very quick. Um, but it's, it's not going to be by the time this podcast. Uh, goes live. Yeah. And this is why basically the uh, what CCP does this is really groundbreaking and changes the way we, we can potentially do science at large scale, right? Um, as Ma Attila was mentioning earlier, it's not the first project they're engaging, but they really build this infrastructure. How can we accelerate science by engaging uh, all the communities of, of, of gamer there that turns out to be uh, very enthusiastic for science and uh, very skilled in a many complex tasks. Yeah, it seems like this is something that um, 
obviously that the work you're doing is, is groundbreaking, but it seems like something that could be applied to lots of other things, uh, like going forward. And, you know, at the moment you're using this, to, you know, you say you search for exoplanets and now you're searching for a cure for COVID, but you know, what other applications could we be using this, this, this crowdsourced citizen science for what other things are out there to be, you know, that we could put this, uh, application of citizen science towards I've, besides other applications, full spectrum data is used everywhere. It's for cancer. It's for diseases of the immune system. We we have cures for cancer now um, that have to be developed one patient at a time. And and so the, aside from COVID, there's just so much full cytometry data that that's that's affecting so many people. Anybody use leukemia or lymphoma, it's everything is shot through full cytometry. So the technology has been put in place for COVID, but there's so many diseases that are infecting millions of people that we can apply this technology for. Aside from the citizen science stuff that uh, Jerome and Attila can talk about. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I think generally speaking, in life sciences, we see a lot of uh, cases where data is. It's relatively easy to acquire or, or well, easy is, is probably not the good word because this is really uh, uh, a bleeding edge uh, technology that they use. But uh, let's say we, we, we can acquire very large data sets. On the other end of the story, we, we, we start to have uh, very uh, good machine learning algorithms. But as Ryan was uh, explaining, we need that link to that. So we need training data to, to, to make these machine learning algorithms really effective. And that's what players can provide. So we can feed these big data sets that comes from life sciences and then, uh, and then uh, improve these machine learning algorithms for life sciences. Yeah, just to basically uh, uh, emphasize indeed what, what Attila said, uh, now we see we have the, the emergence in the last, last, uh, last years about the, the broad use of machine learning and AI in many different fields. Um, these are very powerful techniques, but they always rely on, uh, on large data sets uh, they can be trained on and uh, and and potentially, um, I mean, in as, as large as possible to make the technique reliable. And this is a very timely um, uh, project that we have to put on because for many problems and complex problems in life science, indeed, uh, we're missing this data uh, that needs uh, the the workforce of uh, of scientists spending hours uh, doing these things by hand at a very small volume. And the, the infrastructure that was uh, uh, deployed by Project Discovery basically enabled us to, to scale this, uh, to scale this up to, to, the, to the level of uh, very large communities and really unlock the potential of uh, artificial intelligence techniques. So basically, anytime a, a, a scientist is looking at a picture and is doing an interpretation of that, um, that kind of that data is applicable to this crowdsourcing. So, you know, X-ray images or anything like that, um, it's the same kind of ideas apply where the human is interpreting an image to get an answer. Uh, those are complex problems for algorithms to do. And um, this is the kind of thing that um, humans can help train those algorithms. Do you think we'd ever get to the point where the algorithms would start to be able to, to, to learn from that and get better themselves without having the need for quite as huge a uh, number of uh, players to be able to look at the data? I think trying to identify in Instagram pictures if the person is holding a cat or a dog, um, the kind of information that you use to make those kind of decisions is very different than if you're looking at a flow cytometry data where you're trying to do uh, dots in, in, in space. And so you really need to have um, algorithms trained for the type of data that you're looking at. Otherwise, it's not going to perform as well. So, you know, obviously, um, you know, science is 
a long process and it and it takes its time. The outbreak of coronavirus has, has been a recent thing. The point that I was um, looking at is obviously you've got this technology now. Will you be able to swiftly move that on, uh, you know, if the data changes? So if, you know, we discover something that we haven't known before about, you know, the COVID-19 or whatever, will you be able to adjust what you're doing to be able to sort of hone in on actually this is what we need to target on? I think I think it's uh, this um, third edition of Project Discovery was very interesting from that perspective. Uh, from the very beginning, um, CCP had this had this uh, approach that they wanted to create sort of framework inside the game that is capable of 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 uh, taking citizen science micro task and showing it to players. Uh, and because they knew that you know. Uh, doesn't matter which project we start with, we'll eventually change it to something else. So in the game, we already have sort of an infrastructure. As I was saying on our side, we, from the beginning, created an API for grain developers. So that piece of software is continuously um, improving, but that's also in place. So right now, what we've seen, and that was quite amazing, that basically in a couple of months' time, we managed to bring it into the live game from having the idea of, of, of using flow cytometric data to, to help these research efforts. And that's, I, I think that is something very, very special. And, and not only did they develop the interface to it, they made it look really cool. And, and so that's important. You know, if you just, if you just have a, a boring, um, you know, run-of-the-mill interface that scientists are used to, it's, it's not going to be engaging. But they, they made it look really cool. And so if you're in the game, it's like, this is this is it's it's fun. They make it fun and interesting, and they and they tie it to the game. They, just the way they present the palettes of colors and and the and the extra graphics they show on the side. It, it, they they specified um, what scientists doing in in their cold uh, laboratories and, and and made it look like a game. And it, it and it, but it's doing the same kind of thing that the scientists are doing in the laboratories. It's just amazing to see. Is that kind of the key to making these citizen science projects work? Making it seem like really natural for the environment that they're in. Yes, exactly. Because I, I think that's that's the power of this whole setup. I mean, this this is why we started in the first place. We 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 knew that if we managed to do something like this, this this sort of very organic uh, integration. So this task becomes part of the game, part of the virtual world that you love so much, that you spend so much time in, uh, that is connected to the lore uh, and the reward system. Then then we can have that kind of activity, what we see actually in project discovery and this, this citizen science project. Yeah, they, they even took one of the scientists that de- developed the data, um, Andrea, our, our collaborator in Italy, who um, who provided the, uh, some of the COVID data, they actually took him and made him an avatar in the game, and he walks through the players, teaching them how to do the analysis. And I saw that, and it was, it's was, it was like peace out, I'm done. That's the coolest thing I could ever be involved with. It, it was just such an amazing thing to see. And so they're they're really integrating the science directly into the game. You're, you're having the guy who's a, he's a frontline clinician who who's working on COVID data, teaching the players how to do his job. How cool is that? Yeah, that's really interesting what Ryan was saying because, uh, and I think that's an important part of this project is that it's not just about the data because the data is already super interesting and very valuable for research, but it's a unique opportunity to do science outreach. Just think about this project. I mean, Ryan said that even he didn't know about flow cytometry when he started to work at the lab. Now we have potentially millions of people in the game and through these interviews who learn a lot about flow cytometry. Why is it important? 
And this kind of this kind of knowledge or this kind of uh, science outreach helps these research efforts because then they they have they have much more uh, sort of support from the general public. And I, I see with all these project discoveries, we always had researchers very involved in the process. For example, the last one with exoplanet research, uh, we were honored to have Michel Meyer to be the, the face of the project. So he, he also got an NPC in game, a non-player character in game, but he also came in person to FanFest, which is the annual player convention in Reykjavik, where we have three or 4,000 players coming every year. And he gave a presentation about how he discovered the first exoplanet, you know, uh, for which, by the way, he got the Nobel Prize last year. And I think this thing that a, that a, that a, uh, a researcher of, of his caliber is coming to, uh, coming to a gamer convention talking about his research, I think it clearly shows that scientists taking this opportunity very, very seriously. And anything we can do to help uh, everyday science, everyday people uh, understand science and help them see that you know, this this isn't fake science. This this is how discoveries are made. Uh, this is where this is how data is generated. This is all that's involved. Uh, a better appreciation for what's what scientists are doing and how complex it is, and, and the and the work that's done to make discoveries. I, I think it's gonna it's gonna it lifts up everybody, and especially when you can get them involved. It, it, it's just such a fantastic thing. That was Attila Shantner, Ryan Brinkman, and Jerome Valdisball talking to me about Project Discovery. Let us know what you thought about the episode with a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts, and check out our previous episodes at sciencefocus.com forward slash sciencefocuspodcast. The new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out this week, and in our cover feature we look at the missions planning on building a permanent base on the moon by 2030. As ever, there's loads more inside, so head over to the website to find out how to subscribe. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.